Let's Talk Books. I'm Robin Van Auken, a writer and a teacher. My guest and I want to help you write your own book. We're sharing ideas about inspiration, book publication, and promotion. You can find the episode show notes, a free novel, guides, and tutorials at robinvanauken.com. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Janice Ogrechek, the Director of Public Programming and Outreach at the World of Little League Museum. This museum is to Little League what the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown is to Major League Baseball. It's filled with significant artifacts that range from serious to frivolous. There is a piece torn from the Berlin Wall when it fell. The badge of a firefighter who perished at the World Trade Center on 9-11 a 1970s-era troll doll, and even a baseball patch that flew in space with an astronaut. Each of these artifacts tell a story, one person's story, and how they credit Little League with helping them develop the traits of character, courage, and loyalty that helped them persevere when difficult times called for it. Did I mention that Jan is also the author of a book called The World of Little League? This photo book shares some of the history of Little League Baseball with a focus on artifacts that could be found at the museum. A former newspaper reporter and editor, Jan is a consummate researcher and she loves the art of the interview. When she accepted the invitation to write the book, she dedicated herself to finding the people behind the artifact and, when possible, talking to them. Hmm, despite the fact that their story possibly couldn't fit, into a lengthy photo caption, it was important to Jan to listen to it and to honor it. She also honors her stories when visitors come to the museum, and she's able to tell them a little bit more about that strange piece of dental work, or the bicycle, or the origami cranes, and those Emmy statues. What's with all of those things? A museum is a curiosity shop when you don't have context, and that's what Jan does best. She gives context and meaning, as well as accuracy, to people's stories. Let's get started. Hi, it's Robin Van Auken, the Wholehearted Author, and it's Session 20. And I'm here today with Janice Ogrechek, my dear friend Jan Ogrechek, a writer, um, a reporter, and now she has actually evolved in her career into something a little bit different. She's also the author of the world of Little League Baseball, and she's going to talk to us today about her book and her new career. Hi, Jan. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Robin. All right. So tell me a little bit about what you do now and how you evolved from being a reporter at the local newspaper into your new career. Well, not new, but new to the readers. New to the readers. My my job at Little League is I uh, work at the World of Little League Museum and Official Store, and I am the Director of Public Programming and Outreach, and I work underneath the Executive Director and the Curator Works aside. So we're pretty much a team. We also have an educator now who helps do some of the projects with the students, so we're offering some new things in our school tours this year. So, Director of Outreach, you are working with um, different kinds of programming there, right? Like, for example, I have a little painting on my desk that my husband did, and this is because of something that you've introduced over there at the World of Little League. Tell yes. me about this this concept. We're very excited to have offered uh, art at the museum, 
And this particular painting was uh, an American flag with a baseball or softball, if you were a softball fanatic, that you could paint. And we had a really good time. We had 13 people there. And we're planning another one for October. So this is a little bit similar to the, um, the the trend where people go out and have cocktails and learn how to draw and learn how to paint, except that the world of Little League, there's no alcohol involved. It's an afternoon event and people of all ages can come. That is correct. It's an afternoon event. We have it on a Sunday afternoon. No alcohol. But we did have uh, cookies and and water and some other snacks. So it was good. Uh, but most importantly, we had um woman who f- who's with Wistart Studios did the uh, programming for us and she did a fine job of coming up with an idea and then presenting it to us and teaching us some brush strokes so well I'm not an artist and I've always wanted to learn how to do it I, I next time you have this I think I'm going to check it out it's kind of fun that you're combining art with baseball but it's really not that unusual because baseball is um America's sport, and Little League Baseball is a microcosm of America. Tell me a little bit about your book, The World of Little League, and it focuses on the museum, right? Tell me. Yes, this book is all about the museum and some of the artifacts that are in it. Uh, In doing the research, we selected some artifacts that um, had backstories that were worth telling or wanted to share. In fact, I probably have... Another book or two worth of artifacts with backstories to share, but I've only written this one at this time. Sounds like you might have plans for another book then. I could, maybe when I retire. Now, now you <laughs> did this book with Arcadia, right? And Arcadia that is, correct. is very um, popular with its historic series, but this is a new type of series. This is a scenes of modern America. So they wanted you to use photos that were uh, colorful, right? Yes. Yes. More colorful photos and more of the, since 1950s. So. And with this kind of book, you've got, um, you got it segregated into chapters. So you have introductions with each chapters, but then you're telling little vignettes. The majority of the book are these beautiful photos that you've selected. Some of them not so beautiful because they're old. They're scarred up. They could be like an old snapshot that came out of a family album or something that was tucked into a kid's dresser drawer 50 years ago. For example, I noticed you've got a photo of, um, presidents, vice presidents, baseball players, all kinds of things. That's correct. Some of the stories that you researched for this, um, were some of them new to you or had you already been familiar with every single item? When we redid the museum and reopened in 2013, we had done a lot of research for some new items. So there were a lot of things that were newer and that we had been doing some research on. So I did learn new stories that I did not know from previously only because we have new things now. Uh, the artifacts are, are different, and we went for some some pieces that are a lot newer than what we had had before, and from different venues, like we have a troll doll, which has always been part of our our um, archive since in the 1980s, I believe, but we just put it on display. Uh, it was a, a Good luck charm for a team that was here at the Mu- at the World Series a number of years ago. Okay, all so right. So that's the kind of thing that goes into the backstory about the team and why we have this doll and why it's important to how Little League formed and shaped and came metamorphosized with the world. 
You know, I, I think I should probably backpedal for a minute because people who are listening to this show might not realize that the world of Little League is the official museum of Little League International. And Little League International, that is where the Little League Baseball World Series is out. That's the headquarters. And we're here in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. So I just want to That's put that idea. little bit out there in case people are going, what? What the heck are you guys <laughs> talking about? But you've got some other interesting tidbits in there. Tell me about Michael Camerata and why you have that image in that book. Michael Camerata is is well-known if you've come to a Little League World Series, or he should be, because his number 11 is on the fence. A lot of people see the 11, but they don't really know what that number 11 is in the outfield. Um, Michael was here with his Little League team in the World Series. He played right field, hence his number 11 being in the right field position. And he was uh, the youngest firefighter who died in 9-11 when the Twin Towers fell in New York City. Very sad story. And uh, we're disappointed, of course, that uh, all those lives were lost. But we are very, very uh, happy to be able to explain his story. Uh, He had as a... A letter that he wrote to his parents that if he passed away from his job, that he would died what he enjoyed doing, and we've got his um, baseball and some other pieces to, of his equipment and and a, and, a, and a fireman's badge that he had, right. and he was the youngest fireman in the in the whole a whole group that died. My goodness! Now let's go back to that. That little bit of a mystery. You were saying that he is number eleven, and his position in baseball was number nine. And yes. the fact, and that just gave you guys chills when you were doing research on Camerata. That's correct. Because of the nine eleven and 9/11 the connection. Connection. This is. I mean, I, I'm not a numerologist or a person who's prophetic, but you know, there's that's a bizarre coincidence. It is, and it is. It's still chilling when you look at it or tell his story. Yes. Um, we have another 9-11 connection in the museum, and that is um, one of our exhibits involving a young lady who died uh, in when uh, Gabby Gifford was shot. Uh, this young lady played baseball, but she was born on 9-11 in New York City. Oh, my. So her family was known to these um, the survivors of the, the uh, fire companies because they had talk to them about in you know, a documentary about kids that had been born on 9-11 and how their lives were affected. And then she moved to Arizona. And while in Arizona, she was, wanted to be, become a politician. So she went to see Gabby Gifford and she was shot and killed. So it's Christina Taylor Green is her name. And we have some information about her. But interestingly enough, whenever her funeral was, people from the uh, fire department in New York went to the funeral and took a statue made from an angel statue that was made from pieces of the twin towers. So it gives a lot of creepy feelings whenever you hear all those things. And like we said, this is a microcosm of not just America, but life everywhere. That's right. So you have birth, you have death, but tell me a little bit about the game too. Now, when I was looking through the book earlier, um, I noticed that you signed it to us because my husband and I bought it on a visit when you were having a book signing at the museum and you said batter up in your your signature. Yes. That's a pretty cute little tell me a little bit about 
your book signing there and what it was like when your book was launched. It was very exciting because it was my first book ever, and I had been envious of some friends that I have, including you, who had had several books already, and uh, so I was excited to come in and, and do a signing, and it was exciting yeah. to see your book in print and all that hard work that How, you put and you, into it. You actually, now you work at Little League, and this book is about Little League, but you were not allowed to work on this book during Little League times, were that you? That is correct. I had to stay after work to look at the things and work on the pieces. How long did it take you working after work? Oh, the whole book took about a year from the start to the publication. So probably six months of fairly busy time. But as I said, I did way too much research. I know that better now, so for future references, but I have all those notes. Well, once you get started with research, it's really not for a project. It's for yourself, isn't it? It is. It's really rounded you out as a person with a museum. Now, if anybody comes in there, you have all of these stories to tell. I think sometimes I get them bored because I have too many stories to tell. (laughs) Hey, story. Speaking about story, let's talk about your favorite story, Mr. Musgrave. favorite story, Musgrave, yes. He is our astronaut. He played Little League in Boston area, well, Massachusetts area. And what's an interesting artifact about him is that Norman Rockwell actually lived on his farm. And that's where his museum is, is where Story Musgrave grew up. And he's just a fascinating person. He's in his 80s now. And um, I had dinner with him one evening and he was talking and all of a sudden he pulls out a notebook And he starts writing down a very long math equation. I have no idea what it meant, but it tucked the book back away and continued talking like he had never stopped his conversation. So he has a brain that's working 94-7, I think. You know, I had lunch with him when he was visiting here in town, and I know what you're talking about. He's... Like me, he's a victim of divergent thinking. (laughs) That's a nice way to say it. We're a little squirrely. (laughs) But now, Story Musgrave, he's not just an astronaut. He's like, uh, well, he's one of our favorite astronauts. He actually helped repair the Hubble telescope. Yes, he did. And Uh, you had the loss of almost of his fingers because he was uh, told to come back into the space station and he decided that if he didn't finish his work, it probably would never get finished. And what's little black finger. So he was starting to get a little cold, he told us in his suit, but he did finish fixing the Hubble and he's credited with that. He's also flown in most of the aircraft or spacecraft that were the Challenger and and all the other named. Yeah, we saw the Discovery. The Discovery Discovery. is out at the Smithsonian um, Uh, out in uh, near Dulles Airport. We were we were actually touring that, my husband and I touring that, and we saw the Discovery is sitting right there, parked in the bay, in this massive, <laughs> what a pretty big museum that is, <laughs> along with the Enola Gay and a SR-22 Blackbird. But anyway, back to the Discovery. We were standing there looking at it, and I said, hey, why don't we take a photo of you in front of the Discovery and send it over to your buddy story? And he replied right away, this guy is so reachable. Tell me about the conversations you've had with him. Well, my first conversation, he said, uh, well, I can talk to you more in depth on this day because I asked him what was a good day. And he said, I said, okay, you're going to be on the West Coast. And he said, yes. And I said, well, if I call you at this time, it'll not, it'll still be morning, really early morning. He goes, that's not a problem. I will be there. And when I called him at nine o'clock in the morning, he was indeed there. And he said he'd been up there pretty much all night because he just loves to work and use his brain and he's a he's a surgeon 
heart surgeon and he has 10 different degrees physiology never graduated from high school yes that's another one of the famous he stories right here. He, he, he actually joined was it the army that he joined? no the marines the marines he became yeah, a, marine. He was a marine and, uh, and he was working on the engines because he was very good with his hands having grown up on a farm because he was the one who kept all of the farm equipment together and uh when he when he uh joined the marines he would rev up the engines so much that the pilots said they better get him to flying the planes instead of fixing them because they didn't want him to be taken off or blow one up because he was revving up the engine so much. So he's now working on uh, palm trees, trying to grow a disease resistant palm tree. He lives in Florida. He's with his daughter. With his daughter, who's probably 13 or 14 now and uh, his wife and, uh, but he keeps pretty busy. He does. He's sometimes in Australia, sometimes in Disney and Imagineering, and he's in several other companies. Imagineering. I, I looked up that company after my conversation with him because I know that he's on their board, maybe, or part of that Somehow company. think tank. <laughs> but I, Imagineering is just a fascinating company. And when you mentioned Australia, it made me think about his book while being up in space. On, on the different um, yes. space shuttles, he's been taking a lot of photographs. So he actually created a book himself that has photographs and poetry. It's almost like, what is this guy not able to do? Exactly, He's our modern da Vinci, isn't he? <laughs> we think so. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about your writing. Now that you've, you are working at the World of Little League, but you didn't always work there. Tell me about when you were in college and how you decided you wanted to become a writer and your experiences in college as a writer and then after college as a reporter. Okay. I went to Penn State uh, University main campus. And before I had gone there, it was, you have to remember this was back in the 1970s. So we were having Deep Throat and all the other fun things going on in the news business. So writing was a really exciting career, plus was something that I had done in high school, writing for the school newspaper. So I took journalism at Penn State, worked for the Daily Collegian. And uh, when I left there, I got a job here in Williamsport, the Sun Gazette. So I worked as a general news reporter and up to an editor of the uh, lifestyle section uh, and everything in between. I did some fires and police activity and court cases and lots of different things. So I have a well-versed background on um, like Muncie Prison, for example. So you were a general reporter and uh, you were working the vicinity desk at different times. I did do area news. And it got you to thinking while you were working as a reporter. I remember we had conversations that you the wheels turning. You were thinking about becoming an author. This was 20 years ago when I first met you, more than 20 years ago. And you, at the time, were thinking of maybe crime novels, maybe young adults. Tell me a little bit about the genres you like to read and think about writing. I was thinking about the uh, crime novels, and I also was thinking about the uh, children's historical fiction. I really do enjoy reading historical fiction because I like research, and then I like the adding a little bit into it to make the story flow and, and be real representative of what the, happened in that area or in that time. And then I have another idea for a children's book, a young children's book that my husband keeps telling me, reminding me that I need to write that book someday. So yeah, he's, I can't he's tell past. you what it is. He made me write a book or two. <laughs> yeah, every time I turn around, he's got a good idea for a book. And he I, does. actually, I had to do two of them. So 
Stop it, Richard. Write your own books. <laughs> so, so what kind of book are you thinking about writing now? And tell me, have you even started books? Have you got something on the back burner mm, on computers tucked away? Not tucked away, just in my brain and in some paper some places. But uh, I can't tell you this one because it's a really awesome story, and I wouldn't want you to take that idea. Oh, gosh, I'm so lazy. I'm not going to steal anything. <laughs> it's a little fiction story, but it would be historical or uh, factual because it would tell children about certain things that were going on in in their lives. Oh, well, you know, I have a children's, it's actually a young adult novel series that I've been toying with. Oh, yes. And, and if I tell you a little bit about mine, you'll say, okay, good. That's not yours. Okay. All right. So <laughs> here's my story idea. Jules Verne is one of my favorite authors. And um, I had thought about creating a series where he is not actually the person who, um, research these concepts and ideas for his stories, like um, over Africa in a balloon, you know, or 20,000 leagues beneath the sea, or, you know, mysterious island, all these different concepts he's come up with, submarines, balloons. In my books, it's actually his stepdaughter, Valentine Morel, who has, um, at the age of 16, ran away from home um, and became an adventurer. And when she does come home, her you know, loving stepfather is always there to listen to her adventures because she's a little bit different. She's, you know, a courageous young woman who's just not going to stay home. And she's got a little bit of family money from her father, her deceased father's estate. And so she hits the road and she goes in exploring. She goes to Africa. She goes to America. She goes all over Europe. And at the same time, Scientific America um, American has been putting out a newspaper and this newspaper is uh, dedicated to publications such as, um, you know, putting out patents, engineers are sending articles, inventors are creating things. And so scientific American is covering all of these concepts and ideas. And what she does, because she had read so many of them as a child growing up with mm -hmm. Jules Verne, who had this, you know, fantastic research going on, she decided to go and meet some of these people and then oh, try to use some of these uh, different things, you know, like what, you know, eventually the Hundley became the um, submarine. So she, she, you know, it's all about her going out, learning about science and engineering and math and technology in the 1800s, in the, you know, mid to late 1800s and um, doing some adventures on the side, you know, some of them are a little dangerous and very, very light romance, just a little mild flirtation because we're talking a young adult novel. She's, she's probably going to be 16, 17, 18, 19 that time. So uh, please tell me that's not your story. No, no, not at all. <laughs> My story is for a much younger audience to start with. So you're, mm. you'll be good. But I think it's awesome that you're putting a young female role model from the 1800s into a book. Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. we need those kind of role models. Well, hopefully hopefully she'll materialize. It's a little bogged down getting there because my problem is I have all these other ideas for books and I keep thinking that I have to finish those books before I can get to that. <laughs> what What is going on with this linear kind of thinking? I don't know, but if someone steals your idea, I'm going to know it. And so it's good you <laughs> announced it here. So if that story comes out somewhere else, you have definite proof. Well, I, I tell you, I tell you, stories don't always belong to us. And according to Elizabeth Gilbert in her book, Magic, the muse sits on our shoulder and tells us what to do. And if we don't listen, the story is going to up and leave. Somebody else is going to take my story and turn it into something fantastic oh. because I didn't do it. I didn't give it justice and pay attention. 
Are you worried that some of your ideas are going to be lonely up there in your head instead of on the paper? I do worry about that sometime, whether they'll actually get it to the paper and, and whether I would do it in the same format as what I did this book or I would do a little bit more of a historical fiction type explaining a little bit more about the lives of the people that are involved with it. What would it take to get you to sit down and start working on a book right now? What are you waiting for? Free time. <laughs> okay, the world needs to know that you're a busy grandma. You're not just busy at work, you're busy at home. That is correct. I have seven grandchildren, so <laughs> it keeps me out of trouble. My gosh. For a while, none of them lived in the area, but now they live in Montoursville, Lewisburg, so I do get to see them more frequently. In fact, I had breakfast with one, two of them this morning. So you spent some time after work researching this book. I did. Is that a possibility for your next book? Just sticking around work for an hour in the evenings and putting down some ideas? It depends on whether my husband's willing to go for it for a while yet. Because yeah. it was a pretty time-consuming venture. How late would you stay in your office and work on this Ooh, one? Seven or eight. Oh, my. So by the time I would get home, it was getting to be dark. Or it was dark because it was winter. <laughs> So, yes, it was um, not every day, but I called a lot of people and talked to them on the telephone. And so I was doing that uh, when they had free time. So I made matched my schedule to theirs as well. So tell me a little bit about calling these people. See, as a researcher, I like to look at things. I don't like to talk to people. Um, I'm more of an introvert, but you're an extrovert and you enjoy chatting with people. Who, I do. Who did you contact? Uh, one of the people I contacted was a young lady who was 12, and she had 19 strikeouts. Of course, that didn't do anything for her for a perfect game, but it gave her a record of having 19 strikeouts and no hits because someone had dropped the ball, and the other person got on, the batter got on on first base on the drop ball. Um, she is probably 15 or 16 now, but when I talked to her, she was just going into high school and such a delightful young lady to speak with. It was amazing what she had to say and, and what Little League has done for her and the uh, challenges that she has overcome uh, being a girl on the baseball field and uh, how welcoming her team became because they knew that she could really do a good job and she was a good pitcher. Uh, she planned to go on to playing softball because her high school didn't have uh, baseball for girls, but she intended to end up somewhere in college, and I should probably check on her to see if she's done that. Now, this is amazing. How many photos of her do you have in the book? I only have one of her in the book. And how long is the caption for that photo? I haven't come across that. It's probably about 200 words, right? I Isn't would that say it couldn't be more than that because that was my... So for that one photo and that one caption in this almost 200-page book, you spent all that time researching this young lady and then chatting with her on the phone. I did. And, and now you have this story to, to preserve. To narrow and, it. and you did this for so many other people, too. That is quite a commitment to research. It was. And it was... Uh... Overzealous on my part, but, you, but I enjoyed but like, it immensely. Yeah. So it was, and like you say, I, I do share those stories with people when they come into the museum. And now you just shared it with the, with with the audience. audience. Tell That's us wonderful. a few more stories, if you don't mind. We'd love to hear them. Oh, another story. Some of the fun mm. stories that stick out in your mind. 
a fun story that sticks out in my mind that just pops right in there would be uh, well, another NASA one that I have is whenever Colonel Terry Verts uh, was here. Uh, we had a NASA uh, exhibit here at the museum. <clears throat> it was a special exhibit that came in, and, and we had a outer pa- first pitch from outer space at that time. Oh, that's so cool. So it was pretty, it was pretty cool getting to meet him and, and do that story as well. Oh, let's see. Favorite one. Hmm. Or it doesn't have to be a favorite. Just open your book and point to a photo and say, I talked to that person. I talked to this person. Well, I talked to uh, Hale Irwin, and it was somebody who oh, probably Irwin. wouldn't. Most people might not know because he was a golfer, unless you're into golfing. And uh, he was an interesting interesting people person to speak to because he was... Uh, very friendly and very open about his good times that he had in, in Little League. And that's one of the things that members of our Hall of Excellence, of which he is, a lot of them have very good things to say about how the program helped them develop as a youngster into a, a person that had well character and loyalty and, and courage. Uh, didn't necessarily make him a baseball player, but it did make them somebody who have had good human characteristics. Did you play baseball, Little League? No, Little League was before my time. In my area, they didn't have, uh, or was after my time, I should say. It didn't come until my brothers were 12 years old, and they only got to play one year because they were, this was the last year for them. They only had one, <clears throat> the one league level. But um, living near Philadelphia, because I lived near Harrisburg, we would go to the Phillies games, and it was always a fun time to go there, too. But not a baseball player, not yeah. a softball player. I did not get to play baseball either. Just, my just my brother did, like you said, one year before he became too old. Just some pickup. And they would not let me play, wouldn't let me get on the field. I was very frustrated because I got to practice with my brothers, you know, stand there and let them hit me with the ball because <laughs> turns out I needed glasses. <laughs> so, you know, I'd try to catch the ball. Sometimes the ball would catch me right in the face, you know, because they were pretty good pitchers. <laughs> but... No, I never got to play Little League, and I was very resentful about that because I would have been a great Little League player. I was a tomboy, so I, I was just convinced I would have been. You probably would have been a good one. Been. We had a lot of girls who did that same thing, including those who tucked their hair under their cap and pretended to be boys. So, yes. yes, we've got our first girl that we know that played was uh, in 1950, and she tucked her hair up under her hat, after her mother cut off her braids because she had brothers and she was very good at baseball and pretended to be a boy. She called herself Tubby Johnson. And I think what self-respecting girl would have ever called herself Tubby, but that was from the little Lulu cartoon. And uh, she was very good. And they did not kick her off the team. Although in the future years after that, there was a rule that said it is baseball for boys. Now you have to remember that the original title of Little League. It was Little League Baseball for Boys. Right. So it had four boys in the title, but not in the rules. So the second year when she wanted to play, she wasn't allowed to play. And then the girls didn't get to play again until 1974. Um, Maria Pepe was uh, played, and she played three games. She was from Hoboken, New Jersey, and she was one of several girls who actually had tried to play, but her court case was the one that was the one that's considered the when Little League changed its right. mind so Pitiful. girls could play. Now, that was when, in the 70s, I think the National Organization for Women yes, decided they, that they were going to take on Little League. And they did. There, there were 
many, many dozens, maybe I maybe more court cases, lawsuits filed yes. against Little League saying uh, girls should be allowed to play. And Title IX was coming in. Yes. And um, I actually talked to the National Organization for Women. Really? Uh, they, they were at Little League one year protesting the 1973, I believe it was. So they had a little protest going on. I don't know if they were swinging anything around or just had protesting. <laughs> so that's it was cool. an interesting story speaking to uh, uh, someone who was in the in the national organization. I don't remember the person's name right offhand. Now, that story's not in this book, right? It is not. So tell me about a future book then with these stories. What do you imagine? Another Arcadia book with photographs? Or would you do something a little bit more uh, dense, less photos, more text, and more vignettes? Or would you like to see these be used in some other kind of format? Like on your website? For a while there, I remember with your website, you were you were creating... Um, pieces of our past. Pieces of our them. past. Yes. Yes. And I really didn't like that title at the time <laughs> because when I, I looked at it, I went, oh, pop. poop. Pop. <laughs> Pieces of our pastel poop. <laughs> but I loved the articles. And I remember that you contributed them to our local newspaper, too, for a while. That was that was fun. It was. Yeah. It was. So what do you plan for this summer with Little League? Now, we're here at spring. Do you have any guests that are coming you have any events that you've got in the oh, future? We've got some events that are coming up. Uh, we have our open house. We just finished on April 7th. So that was a, a, a good day. It was a little chilly, but we had some people come in and they get to tour the stadium and into the in, into the International Grove where the children stay when they're here. And next coming up, that'll be a big event. will be for Mother's Day. Uh, first 50 mothers will get a special prize when they are special treat when they come in oh yeah what's the treat i can't tell you Uh i want everybody to come if they know what the treat is i want them to come because they want to come right yes mother's day mother's day and then father's day is a big event for us that's whenever we have uh, play catch on the stadium so people who are have tickets to the museum and fathers who sign sign waivers can go down on the stadium and play catch in the outfield for a few minutes, uh, they can't play in the infield, but they can play on the outfield, get pictures and that kind of thing. And it's always a uh, exciting time because people want to get on that stadium since they right. didn't make it when they were teenagers or younger children. And they've been waiting many, many years to play ball on Lomity Stadium. Yeah, A lot of people come in the museum with great stories that they tell and they reminisce about their history and their past of what happened to them whenever they were with Little League. And it's it's really fun to hear the stories. Is that one of the things that you enjoy about the job? Yes, it, it is. is. Talking with the people. As you can see, I like to talk. <laughs> <laughs> so I do like to talk with the people and share stories. And they like to share their stories. And some of them tear up when they're talking about how fantastic their time was with Little League. And you do have others who say, oh, I wasn't very good at it, but I did have fun. So... Brushing them time. off a little bit. <laughs> so so actually what you're doing is curating their stories over and over when you share them in the oral tradition with other visitors. Yes. Or if you share them here with me. Yes, that is true. So we, we were talking a little bit about another Little League book. What could it possibly be? Well, I do feel like I should finish some of the artifacts that are in the museum. So I probably would consider another Arcadia book. 
oh. like it is. Um, Something like um, some it'd be like volume two from the museum, but yeah. uh, in the future it'll be a more of a vignettes. Have you ever looked at that book? Um, I think it was the history of the world in. 100 artifacts. Um, I think it was something at the British Museum. I'm probably just paraphrasing this. But um, have you ever considered something like that? Maybe the story of Little League in 50 artifacts or 100 artifacts or 100 stories. Yes. Because talking to you here, I'm realizing that artifacts are stories too. They have a lot of backstories to them that you can't fit in the caption that goes underneath the picture or underneath the artifact itself. But that would be a pretty interesting idea. It yeah, would be. The story of Little League in, in 100. Or Yeah, I had 250 words to use, and in and the captions we have like 125 letters. So it makes a big difference in how much you can tell. So that's why it's important to get yeah. those backstories. And we try to share those with our, our staff. So whenever people are wandering around the museum and looking at an artifact, that they can share some of the history with, the, with them, too. We like to have that interaction with our staff and, and our visitors. So talk to me a little bit about being a reporter today. Now, you left your job as a reporter. How long ago? Was it 10 years ago? 12 years now. 12 years. Yes. My goodness. And since you left, there's been a pretty big change in the way the Internet has, um, I almost think, decimated local newspapers. If somebody were coming out today, a young person, a young writer, um, and they were interested in journalism like you were. What would you recommend to them? What would you suggest? What kind of advice could you give somebody who has that spark to do some? That's a very difficult journey? question because yeah. most people who consider themselves in the media these days, in my opinion, humble as it is, are not journalists. They are just telling the story that they see. They don't share both sides. Uh, or if they do, they talk about it in um, a way that makes you know that they only like the one side of the story. Oh, they're biased. They're very biased, yes. So I don't like talking heads on TV and the news. Right. <laughs> Screaming at each other, that just doesn't do it for me. And I read the newspaper and say, why didn't they tell this part of the story? And so it gets to be a, a little noisy in my my uh, house or car if I'm looking at something at that time. I just wish that whoever does come in to be a newspaper person or a reporter for a television station or whatever would go back to the beginning days of journalism when you stayed impartial and told the truth from both sides or as it was perceived by both sides. Now, you also actually taught journalism for a while at Lycoming College, and you were their newspaper advisor for many years. That is correct. Tell me a little bit about um, how you see college newspapers evolving. The fact that, you know, some of them are not in print or that the news um, is better set online or or maybe the evolution of the college writer. Mm-hmm. I have I have opinions about this too, you know, the fact that um <laughs> girls and boys at college, young men and women at college sometimes don't want to write news stories anymore. They want to write this clickbaity garbage like uh 12 signs that your boyfriend is cheating on you. That's not campus That's not news. News, no. And they they don't want to talk to people in person anymore, which I see that as a really 
detriment. Um, they want to just do it via email or text messaging. And there's a lot of nuances that you might not be getting by text messaging when you could be talking to someone and see that they're actually lying to you through your teeth. <laughs> so <laughs> you can tell sometimes when that is happening. And then you can ask a more pointed, correct question so that you can get the correct answers or the right answer from that they should be giving. Well, I have a concern about this because at our local college, and this must be happening at colleges everywhere, um, last semester, the media writing class was canceled because they only had two students enrolled. This fall, the media writing class was canceled because there was only one student. I think that's very sad because media writing is the basis for all of the, all of the blogging and everything else. They should learn how to be a good reporter before they just tell the world what they think because their opinion, although it may matter, may not be the correct opinion that is actually the best opinion for the world at that particular time. Need to have the learn how to get all their bases covered. They just don't want to do research anymore. Are we sounding like old fogies? We are. You know, but it's true. It's true. You're absolutely right. If you don't have the fundamentals in reporting and in journalism, you're not going to be able to tell an adequate story. And that is that is one of the reasons why I did leave Lycoming when I did was because I was running into other professors who felt that there wasn't as great of a need to have communications for writing as it was for other types of communication. Business and PR. And, yes. 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 And I still contend that if you're going to write PR, you need to know what the news needs to have till you can write it. So right. it's important, fundamental, and it's just basics. It's important. <laughs> but even worse is that people don't spell anymore. That's really sad. Yeah. And they write a professional email and use the word you as a letter you or right. abbreviate something in it whenever it should be spelled out and explained. It's, I'm a purist at heart, I think. Well, you have to be. You have to stand for something. Exactly. And you stand for journalism and English and good storytelling. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think we're... Just about out of time here. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything that we could talk about? Just to thank you for having me on your show. It's a pleasure to be here and it's quite flattering. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Are you kidding? Because when I came here 22 years ago to Williamsport, you were the person that was the most receptive to me and taught me so much more. I mean, I had gone through journalism in college and I had jobs at various report, you know, as a reporter at various newspapers. I never worked with an editor or a writer that had your passion and commitment and your ethics. So being able to sit down with you and edit newspaper on a daily basis and learn from you, correct ourselves and put out the sections that we did yes. as superior as they were. I think, I think we were an excellent team. We were a great team. We still yeah. are. Yeah. We just have to get back into it, I guess. Yes, we do. And if you just, <laughs> and if you decide you'd like to maybe start a little writing group, like just a personal writing group where, you know, a couple of us can just, you know, reinforce each other. You can see the whiteboard behind me. I cleaned it off this morning in anticipation of your visit. I had something on here. I had plotted a novel that I've been ignoring for six months, a year, two months, more is not going to matter. So I decided I wanted to clean it off and have a brand new slate. Uh-oh. 
a brand new slate. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I can cram anything else on, you know, into my schedule. But if I do, I want it to be something significant and worthwhile. And that's obviously the kind of work you do. Well, thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed the show and that it inspires you to listen to someone's story today. Honor the story by sharing it with others. That's how we live forever. Jan is a lucky woman. She has seven grandchildren who fill her days with happiness. She may not have time to write another book yet, but that time will come. For now, she's doing the most important thing she can, being a grandparent. You can find Jan's book at the World of Little League Museum gift shop and online at littleleague.org. It's also for sale online with major booksellers. And you can find me online at robinvanauken.com. While you're on my site, download my novel, West Wind. It's free. And speaking of free, I've got half a dozen free resources for writers and other creatives, so sign up today. Check out the episode and the show notes at robinvanauken.com, session 20. Thank you so much, and if you haven't done so, please hit that subscribe button on your device. Until next time, goodbye.